once again, it's time for the Terrible Person Hour. <laughs> Guess who the star of the Terrible Person Hour is? Well, come on, don't yell. At least I'm honest. Well, now I could pretend I like you, you know, and I could pretend that I'm a real nice guy. I suppose you'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, you would, come to think of it. Uh, George, you know, we have a very delicate subject here on this particular issue, and I, uh, this particular little segment of uh, my life, this little uh, 55 minutes of blood squeezed out of this very, very bloodless turnip. Uh, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I, I, do you ever see a play done by, uh, written by Samuel Beckett, who uh, is an Irish uh, sort of uh, expatriate French-type playwright, uh, who studied under James Joyce for a long time. He wrote a play called Crap's Last Tape. Now, uh, I read that play when it first came out, and I saw it done, and in fact, at one point, I was considering doing it. And then I realized this would be feckless, because I have been doing it long before Beckett thought of it. You know, I have been doing it long before Beckett and even old Crap himself thought of this. It's like my, my whole life is taped. Seriously. My, my whole life now, I'm, I'm one of the few guys, I, I'm sure, in the Western world who can, uh, at will, reach back into his files and say, uh, I think I'll play uh, 1957 over again. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very scary thing. And I'll, I'll tell you, not only scary, it can be uh, highly disconcerting uh, to put a tape of yourself on with your ideas. You know, very few people actually put their ideas down on paper. Uh, very few people preserve their transient thoughts of any given time, uh, their transient conversation, observations, and uh, view of the world. Not many people do this daily. Uh, perhaps the only people that we know of in our time, maybe our, our uh, newspaper columnists, and even they often don't deal with their thoughts but deal with handouts. You know, the Zsa Zsa Gabor is going to do a war and peace, you know, that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> But I'm talking about a man who really puts down what he thinks day by day. It's like a diarist, uh, a man who keeps a journal. And it can be very disconcerting, very confusing uh, to throw a tape on, say, like in 1960. You put the tape on, you listen to it, and you hear yourself coming out of the speaker. And you're saying things, you know, <laughs> oh, boy, you're saying things, this year I'm going to stop, well, I'm going to stop walking slumped over. I'm going to stand up straight and pull my gut in. I'm going to look into the clouds. And here it is, you know, it's years later. And you're still walking, your gut's down, you know, your head isn't, and, and you haven't seen a cloud, you know. <laughs> and you, you wonder, well, now why is it? Then you put a tape on 1961, see, the next year. And you say, what I'm going to do this year, I'm going to walk up straight. I'm going to pull my gut in. I'm going to look up at the cloud. Year after year. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole premise of Kraft's last tape, is that he never really changed over the whole, all the years that he was playing. Now, if you don't know what the, what the uh, show is about, the play I'm talking about, maybe I, maybe I better explain it, that Kraft's last tape is a guy who, Kraft uh, himself, is a man who had a tape recorder. And over the years, he would sit in his room and he would tape record things that he thought about, and uh, resolutions and stuff. Uh, he would make resolutions. He would talk about people he knew, uh, girls he knew, things he was thinking about. And as Kraft's last tape opens, we see him playing these old tapes. He's listening 
to himself, always telling himself that one thing he's going to stop doing, he's going to stop eating the bananas. He had a habit of eating bananas all the time. And as the play opens, you hear his voice of uh, a thousand years before saying, one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stop this habit of eating bananas. And as the play opens, you see him reaching into his drawer, listening to this, peeling a banana. You know, which, uh, wow, you know, a very, very discouraging play because because Americans don't believe that way, you know. Americans believe tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock they can become another and totally different individual. And you see all over the, uh, the newsstands, places where they sell books, you see these little paper books, in seven minutes, I can make you a new man. Give me seven minutes of your time and you can become a dynamic, hard-hitting overlord of vice in your town or whatever it is you want to be, you know. If you see this forever, the power of positive thinking. You will rise to the top of the ladder if you start thinking right tomorrow morning at 8. Just like that. And, of course, it's always instant. It is. It never has anything to do with long-involved analysis. It never has anything to do with, with the reordering your life. Somehow, there are seven magic keys, like a think good. That's a simple key. I'll have you just try that tomorrow morning at 8. Just start thinking good, you know. Yeah, indeed. Uh, then, the, then the next one is uh, stop being negative. <laughs> try that one tomorrow morning. You know, pick up your newspaper and start reading it. Then try not being negative. You know, for about ten minutes. Just try that one. Uh, be forceful. Well, I mean, if you're born a mole, it's pretty hard, you know, to suddenly become King Kong just like that. You know, and to walk into a room and oh, here comes Fred. Oh, what happened to Fred? Holy smokes! Look at him. He's nine feet tall this morning. Why, last night when he left the office, he was only five feet three. He weighed 104 pounds. He had yellow teeth and nervous eyes. Look at him now. Holy smokes. He's nine feet tall if he's an inch. Look at those shoulders. Look at those fantastic eyes burning with dynamic forcefulness. There's a man who has realized his identity. Be careful, everybody. Hide behind the water cooler today. There is a new Fred, a new Charlie, a new Max, a new Albert. Each one of them read the book last night. The whole mailroom is crowded with new dynamic people. Yes, <laughs> and to aid you in your new dynamic life, we have a few quickie messages here, friends. Oh boy, this is part of one of the uh, one of the longest, saddest sagas of all of human existence. And I'm going to coin a phrase here. The phrase is the master plan illusion. The master plan illusion. And what is the master plan illusion? Well, the master plan illusion is this, roughly defined. <laughs> it's that it's that maddening white whale that insanely insidious, sneaky suspicion that we all have that somewhere, someplace, somehow, through some means, we will finally devise a master plan that will assure everybody a beautiful, full, rich, gracious, successful, dynamic life. A master plan. There is a master plan somewhere obtainable. Now, now, this master plan may have all kinds, many, many types and variations, ramifications. There is the master plan of money. 
A lot of people feel that if you could get enough money, that is the key. That is the key. Other people say, uh, sex. If you get enough sex, that is the master plan. Then there is another group that says, well, if you get enough uh, understanding. This is a big catchphrase. There's part of it right there, you know. Now, of course, uh, the master plan always involves retribution uh, for those who step off the master plan. Now, there have been many master plans that have been proposed throughout all of mankind. We're, in fact, right now in gigantic tussle with one. The communist theories, the communist ideology is, in effect, a master plan. It is a master plan that was proposed by Karl Marx uh, a long time ago, a master plan for beautiful living for all people. Now, that's really what, what uh, defined way down and boiled down and all the various ramifications of the theory removed. This really is a master plan. Master plan. And I think the problem that we're having as a democracy versus communism is democracy is anti-master plan. In other words, we believe that every man must work out his own destiny. This is really, in effect, what democracy says. That, that, that master plans are things which you think of yourself. or The master plan is a personal thing. And they say, no, the master plan is a master plan that involves all people, all times, and must be enforced to make a master plan work. And so we've got this gigantic... Hey, you've often heard people say, well, we don't have anything to offer other people, you know. Uh, they said, the communists come in... Oh, yeah, this is an often heard argument outside of the country. I, I don't know whether many of you ever have talked about communism, let's say, in a country that is not in the Western camp and it's not in the Eastern camp. Let's say a country like, uh, oh, Lebanon, for example. There, there it's, it's a, you get a very different view, you see, of uh, the communist democracy battle in a country like that, they'll say to you, well, uh, you know, the one thing about what does democracy have to offer me? What they really mean is, what is the master plan of democracy? That's what they're really saying. Uh, if you say, well, we, we, we'll send you bananas, or we'll send you wheat, or we'll send you money, that's not a master plan. Whereas the communists send them a book, and it's a master plan. And it, 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 it spells out how life should be lived right down to the last iota. To the last minute, you turn the switch out at night in your pad and you conk off to sleep. And in fact, I presume there's a certain master plan involved in how to sleep, too. How to dream, what not to dream, uh, how to have creative, positive, forceful worker, uh, you know, workers' dreams, as opposed to positive, rotten, selfish dreams. And many of us have, you know, we're laying there in a sack, and the next thing you know, you're not worrying about the civilization, you're worrying about something else, and it'll be very embarrassing. So uh, I'm sure that the master plan includes somewhere along the line dream management. Has to. Uh, because the dream from out of the dream can often come terrible things in the morning when you sit down to write it down. The next thing you know, you're blowing up the castle. However, the master plan syndrome is an old, old one. Uh, certain religions, for example, offer a master plan for life. Now, one, one thing that, that is involved with the master plan syndrome is there must be an authority. Uh, the master plan must have a master figure that's in charge of your life. Uh, this is an important part of the master plan. You can't go to a man and say, here is your master plan of life, Fred. 
You have to enforce it. In short, where, the, where these books all fall down, you know, where it says seven golden keys to becoming a dynamic, hard-hitting, successful man tomorrow morning, is that you've got to do it. You see? And, and the same old schlumping, unsuccessful, shifty, dishonest you uh, cannot really be expected to whip this schlumping, dishonest you into a fantastic, honest you. Because you've got a battle going on there, you say. So, so, the, so the, the true master plan involves somebody else who is all the things that you want to be and who whips you, in spite of yourself, into that thing too. And that's one of the basic uh, subtle lures that dictatorships have for many people. They don't trust themselves. Uh, they want to they slough off that responsibility. And so if you can look for a guy standing on a balcony with a giant beard or a staff or any kind of a big symbol of authority. Maybe he's got a big hat. Have you noticed almost all dictators wear uniforms of one kind or another? Now, that uniform may be uh, a, a quirk of uh, dress. It may be a quirk of, uh, of uh, maybe just physical quality. But in all cases, he sets himself apart from the run of people by some way. Uh, Mussolini, for example, went in for fantastic uniforms. And when this guy is standing up now, who knows what his rank was, what the uniform meant. You know, it could have been the sacred knights of the Milky Way. Who knows? But he had this fantastic uniform with a great big bearskin hat on the top, you know, with epaulets, and he had straps and all kinds of stuff. And he would get out there, he's up there yelling and hollering. Well, you know, everybody else is down there wearing their little old rotten suits and their run-over shoes. Right away, you got something going there. Uniforms are important in this scene. Hitler always wore a uniform, you know, so little, what was his rank? You know, he didn't, he didn't really, he wasn't a, he was a corporal, you know, he couldn't go walk around a corporal suit, you know, this is not going to make it. Uh, and so he just wore a uniform, it was an unidentifiable uniform. He wore a uniform. Uh, Stalin, for example, always wore the uniform of a field marshal. That's a pretty big uniform. Uh, he wore a uniform of a field marshal in the Russian armies whenever he appeared. Now, uh, of course, he often wore that, that simple tunic, but that simple tunic to the people who saw him it was not just a simple tunic. It was a symbol of his field marshaldom, you see. It was a, uh, the, the, he, he had this, this, this aura about him. Now, on the other hand, Castro, you never see Castro in a simple pinstripe suit. Never. Castro is never seen wearing Bermuda shorts. Never. Uh, and a t-shirt. Once in a while you'll see him in swimming. But when he comes out, does he put a cabana suit on? Aha! Does he put a, an old uh, yellow terry cloth robe on, you know, and a couple of clogs? Oh no! He puts on a green fatigue suit, carefully tailored, but it is nevertheless a uniform. And it's very important, you know, this whole thing about the, about the master plan. Speaking of master plans, you know, the, about the closest to a master plan that we've got in this country is that if you if you buy the next thing, it may work out. And so stand by, friends. This may be your opportunity for that golden vista of beautiful happiness. They may have the right message for you. Now, don't put it down. It may be it. Listen carefully. Now, now the, uh, the master plan syndrome or the master plan illusion has constantly bugged people. I think it's one of the one of the one of the major reasons for you know people will give you the idea that wars are caused by 
economics. They come up with this all the time. Or they're caused by racial hatred. Or they're caused by this and that. Maybe up to a certain extent they are. But I suspect that the ultimate reason, or one of the major ultimate reasons for wars, is clashes between the master planners and the non-master planners. You will find people in every, in every society, in every city, uh, the planners. These are people who want, either they want the whole city to be paved over, or they figure that if, if somehow we could get enough taxes together, we could organize this thing into this big thing. You know, it's going to be just fantastic. The master plan. Many cities have what they call the master plan, you know. The master plan, of course, is to make the city beautiful, to make life beautiful, to make everything beautiful in the city. And then, of course, you have the other people who don't believe in this, uh, who have not gotten the master plan bug, and they are the enemies of the master planners. And so, eventually, they wind up in a war. They have to wind up in a war. Because one of the things that the master plan needs to succeed is no other alternative. In short, if the master plan is to truly be master, in other words, it has to be really the master plan, you can't look across the street and see somebody else not living by the master plan doing better than the master planners. So you've got to deal with those people. This is one of the reasons why they have iron curtains, you know. Uh, and so if you've got a giant master plan going and it's kind of having trouble, you know, you're blowing flats and everything else and you've you got a bad transmission and you're just struggling along, you better doggone well pull down the shades. <laughs> you just better do it because there's a lot of guys walking around out there scratching and spitting and yelling and hollering. Ain't got no master plan and they're swinging like mad. They are going all the way. Now, if you've got a master plan, you've just better close down the lights. Uh, if you don't want your master plan to blow up. And there has hardly ever, in fact, to my knowledge, there's never been a master plan that's worked out. Uh, I wonder whether many of you know anything about the utopian communities that were established here in the United States around the turn of the century and just before. There are hundreds of little towns in America that were established as genuine utopians. In other words, you've often had an idea, I'm sure, that if I could just get a group of my friends together... And we could go away somewhere, uh, just get this little island or move out into the mountains someplace. Me and my friends, who all think alike, we, we're all good thinkers, my friends. The trouble is that we've we got to deal with all these rotten people. If only we could get together, just us little group here, we'll go off in this place. We'll buy this uh, island, see, and then we'll establish a true democracy. Nobody will be in charge, you see, because one of the problems, of course, is jealousy. We know that, don't we, friends? <laughs> All right, so we'll do away with jealousy by not, nobody's in charge. See? <laughs> How about that? That's taking care of that problem. All right, now, we won't have money. That's the cause of a lot of problems. Everybody will get just exactly what he needs for the amount of work he does. See, no money. Eh, money's the root of all evil. Do away with money. Okay. All right, we got that now. Now, another thing, we'll have total freedom. You can think anything you like in our community. That's one of the problems. You know, everybody in, in, in any, of, any community we know, you know, they get mad at each other for thinking this, and they get mad at that guy for coming up with that rotten idea. Well, we're going to have total freedom of ideas. Okay, gang? What do you say? All right, let's go. Oh, yes. Let's go. Let's go, and off they go, plodding through the swamps, carrying their little packs upon their backs. 
Off they go, the little hardy band of true believers. Off they go, over the horizon, searching for the Emerald City. There they go along that yellow brick road, through the poppy fields, with the cowardly lion on one side and the scarecrow on the other. They're on their way to Oz. All right, gang. <laughs> oh, my. Gee, what a terrible cynic I am. Well, and they, uh, oh, another thing. Would you please set that up again there, Mike? We just need that for one more shot in the head. Uh, another thing, we've got to have a good name for our little place. You know, too many countries are named things like Slavobia. They're named, you know, just ridiculous names. You know, just these, now what does these names mean? So we've got to have a name that embodies our philosophy. What do you say we call it? New Harmony. Yes, New Harmony. There's a lovely name. Well, let's call it Love Forever, Idaho. How about that, huh? Well, let's call it Friendship, Indiana. And that little band of gimlet-eyed idealists go plotting with aggressive friendship in their heart. Aggressive, angry, dynamic, love, and harmony. Harmony over Alice. And of course, the only rule we'll have, we'll have to deal strongly with anyone who's anti-harmony. Now, how shall we deal strong? Well, there's only two ways. Either we throw them bodily out of our harmonious little organization, or perhaps we'll have to hit them in the mouth and bring them into harmonious line. That's the only rule we'll follow. Of course, we'll have to have a little discussion as to who's going to decide that. And since we don't have any leader, that's going to present a little problem. But we'll settle it when we get there, friends. Well, naturally, since we are working in a new field, you can expect a few mistakes. Uh, there will be a few little mistakes along the way. <laughs> yeah, like that poor little old lady that got run over by the tractor the other week because she got mad that we were going to put a harmonious uh, uh, church in her yard. But that's little things like that. Along the line, you've got to expect what we call growing pains. Now, uh, there are certain uh, cynical people on the outside of our little community that say that we shouldn't have shot all those guys last week up against the wall. But after all... In the end, it's for the good of us all and the good of harmony. Because those were rotten people, you know. They played craps and they spit and yelled and hollered around. And, and when we had our harmony meeting, two of them laughed out loud. Absolutely laughed out loud when Brother Crawford got up and talked about love forever. This kind of person is the kind of person that's been causing trouble in the world since the very beginning. Don't you believe that? Of course, everyone can see that. So there was no problem there. And then, naturally, last week when we had to cut that big hole in the ground and put 14,000 kids in it, well, after all, those kids were the kids that came out of those families. I mean, with those, and that kind of stuff is catching, you know? Next thing you know, we got a whole crowd of laughers around here. And the whole wall will go completely down. Well, after all, a lot of people don't understand that. And after all, we're involved in a new world. And since we're in a new world, we have new things to think about and new moralities to work out. 
But don't worry, friends. We're just going through a few growing pains here in harmony. Just a few little things that we'll have to straighten out. Of course, it's been 117 years, but you don't build Rome in a day. So come join us, friends, in harmony forever. Okay, gang. <laughs> All right. Uh, stick around. It's the sales department again, friends. Boy, <laughs> gee, it's a terrible thing I just done. I, I admit that because uh, you just can't say things. Because everybody secretly does have the thought that somewhere there is this possibility that we can work out. Well, it's it's the utopian ideal. It's uh, paradise. The paradise concept is an old one, boy, and it's very difficult. To, they had it years ago. They called it Olympus, uh, Parnassus. There have been thousands and thousands of names of this. Have you ever visited one of these places? This is really a revelation. I remember as a kid, uh, I come from the Midwest, and the Midwest, you know, uh, was dotted with these places. You know, it's interesting to find that, that a lot of people don't really know much about the history of philosophical thought in America. And uh, they're constantly surprised to find that in many areas of the Midwest were the true bastions of what you might call the romantic idealist. Now, why was it the Midwest? Well, it was because he had a split out of Philadelphia or Boston or New York or wherever it was that the Puritans or uh, the early settlers in America came and set up a kind of very rigid society. Uh, the Puritan society of the uh, upper northeast is an example of it, the Cotton Mather syndrome and so on. So eventually, large numbers of people began to say, look, uh, this didn't work out here along the East Coast. You know, they came originally hoping they would create a, a paradise. And they said, well, okay, let's, let's forget it. And they jumped into a bunch of covered wagons, and they set off for what at that time was the wilderness. That was the equivalent of going to an island, would be to go to Indiana, uh, Iowa. And all over Indiana, all over Iowa, all over Illinois are these little communities, even to this day, that maintain a kind of... Uh, I suppose you can call it a kind of, uh, oh, an identity separate from the rest of the communities around them because of their idealistic background. There is a New Harmony, you know. Did you ever hear of New Harmony? You don't know about New Harmony, Indiana? You thought I invented that. Well, that's an actual name of a town that was set up with exactly the ideals that I outlined in that little bit that we just did. Even though it sounded very satirical, that is a true name of a town. There is New Friendship, Indiana, which, by the way, was formed because it was a group of guys that got mad in New Harmony and took off and said, let's have New Friendship. We have plenty of harmony, but no friendship. And they took off and set up their little deal. And, uh, <laughs> and it went on and on and on. And all over the Midwest, you find little towns that have names like that that were set up by an idealist. Uh, one of America's authors is a man, one of the most famous of all, the uh, idealistic uh, communities was set up by a group of writers back around the time of World War One. Upton Sinclair was one of the major forces behind it. I've, I've forgotten now what the name of the community was, but it was a fascinating thing. There were all kinds of people like Edna St. Vincent Millay. In other words, it was as if all the people who designated themselves as right thinkers. Can you imagine a community composed of, uh, let's say, uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, Edward Albee, Walter Lippmann, 
<laughs> all the right thinkers got together, you see, and set themselves up this little place, and within 30 minutes, they are killing each other, fistfights, yelling, hollering. It was the worst possible conceivable thing. What was the name of it? Brook Community, I think they called it? And it was, it was, it was here in New York State or possibly in Pennsylvania. But it's a famous experiment in this kind of communal living. You know, the whole business of free love. We're not going to have any of these ridiculous restrictions, you know, and other stuff. Well, within 15 minutes, one guy was trying to make the scene with another guy's chick, and the first gunplay started. You know, <laughs> they had left ridiculous old society behind, but, oh, boy, they brought a lot of other stuff along with them, which is like being human, you know. Uh, that's a very bad problem right there in itself. Well, nevertheless... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, these things have popped up all over the country. Uh, and the thing that, that set them apart, though, from the ideologies of Europe was that they tried to get away from the society and establish their own little deal. They never once uh, set themselves up as an attempt to try to convert the entire country to new harmonyism. Uh, that, that is not a thing that happened in the American experience. It did happen in other uh, other philosophies in other countries. Uh, of course, we know the, the, the whole uh, story of National Socialism in Germany, which was another one of those utopian concepts. We know the story now of Communism, which is a utopian concept. Uh, one of the craziest ones, of course, uh, many of our utopias had religious concepts behind them. And Are you interested in this subject at all? Uh, because I'll tell you of two visits that I've had as a boy to these wild, strange communities. Stick around, speaking of the wild and strange. Now, large numbers of these uh, utopian communities were based on the idea, of course, this, uh, most of them sprang, uh, really sprang into prominence in the 19th century when religion was a real operating... Uh, everybody had a religion. Uh, the atheist was very rare. Uh, the agnostic was even rarer uh, because the atheist, in a sense, was a religion too, you see. Uh, the agnostic was much rarer than the atheist. And so religions were really uh, the dominating driving force behind almost everybody in America. America was set up, in a, in a sense, early in, the, in its very early days as a religious country. You know, they were looking for religious freedom primarily, a large number of the people who came originally to America. So naturally you had really a religious country. So immediately the, the thing that broke out was that they began to realize that freedom of religion didn't work so good when you had a lot of religions together. <laughs> you know, when you had one religion here and one religion there and this religion there, all of them were together in the city, next thing you had, you had trouble. Everybody's yelling and hollering whether they're going to have this kind of school, that kind of school, what kind of history you're going to teach, what kind. So the, the, the idea began to grow. Well, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's go off and start our own town where everybody believes the same thing. Then we won't have this problem. And so they set up religious utopias all over America. There were, and many of these, yeah, oh, well, what do you think Salt Lake City was? Uh, the Mormon trek was a religious trek. Uh, it was almost like a religious crusade. Uh, then you had, you had dozens of these things set up, and, and many of them, you see, were not involved, of course, in what you might call the major religions. The big religions, the Catholic religion, the Protestant uh, mainstream religions, uh, Baptist, uh, Protestant, uh, Presbyterianism and Lutheranism and so on, they were offshoots, little tiny offshoots that were yelled at by their own churches. That's why they took off. 
And so if a little tiny group, uh, let's say, grew out of the Protestants and they believed that the earth was made out of cheese, and they really believed it, see, and they were still... And so finally all the Protestants, come on, get out of here with the cheese idea, that's ridiculous. So then they finally went out and set up their own town where they could write their own textbooks. Now, do you think I'm being funny? Well, there was a town in Illinois right outside of Chicago when I was a kid. The town was named Zion, and it was established as a religious town where everybody had to believe the same thing. If you were, and now this had nothing to do with Zionism, nothing to do with, with Israel. This is this a town called Zion, and their, their idea was involved, and they had a dictator, by the way. Uh, and he was really the head of their church, which, of course, in effect, he became the dictator in, a, in, in actuality. And he wrote the textbooks. And one of the things that he taught was that the earth was flat. Absolutely. And do you know that to this day, almost entirely that same town believes that the earth is flat? And that this is a, a trick, a ridiculous trick that's been foisted off uh, on the part of, the, of the, the atheistic scientists all over the world. They've foisted this round earth concept onto the, onto the people of the world only to make them uh, not believe in God or not believe in whatever it is they believed in. They also taught that when, when you looked up at the heavens, heaven was about 35 miles above the earth. And it was a, a, a sort of black curtain. And the stars were holes in the curtain. You were seeing light. Yeah, I'm saying, no, no, that sounds ridiculous, but this was taught seriously in this town. Now, among other things they taught was that all earthly pleasures that we know, uh, even the most trivial, are works of the devil. Cigarette smoking, for example, was not just a bad habit. The devil had invented cigarettes and was out passing them around. Uh, the pool room, this was the work of the devil. Brunswick bulky colander had nothing to do with it. That uh, that was uh, part of the devil's work. Uh, movies? Do you think Daryl Zanuck made them? Uh, uh, uh Mephistopheles was behind the camera. He had the megaphone and he was hollering at Theta Para. And now wave the fans, baby. That'll get them. Okay. Now wink lasciviously at the camera. All right, cut. All right, can it? That was very good. It was the devil, you see, that was behind the megaphone. Speaking of the devil, friends. Well, uh, this town, uh, this town, uh, we used to go there and was famous around Chicago for one thing. It was famous for being probably the most dynamic speed trap in the history of Western man. That if you, <laughs> if you drove through this town faster than eight miles an hour with the wind behind you, it was the pokey. And not only that, it was 55 bucks to get out of that slammer. Uh, and to get back into your Oldsmobile to proceed on your unhappy Sunday drive. Now, the, the New Zion, or what was it New Zion? Zion. They, did, they didn't use New Zion. It was Zion. They had a sign when you came into town. Now, I saw this sign. Huge sign. And it said, Cigarette smoking forbidden by law in the city limits of New Zion. And this means you! You should have seen my old man putting his butts out the side. There was a pile of butts three feet thick just to the left of that side. You never saw anything like it. <laughs> and then the sign went on to say, The wearing of cosmetics is forbidden by law in this town. 
On the other side of the road was a 14-foot-high pile of used Kleenexes. Lipstick all over them, you know. <laughs> Never saw anything like it. And then the final one, cigarettes, cosmetics, and silk stockings are the work of the devil. You should have heard the snapping garter bells. Well, they, they, no, they really, they really meant it. And if you walk down the street with a pair of, with a pair of silk stockings on, smoking a cigarette on your way to a movie, it was life. I mean, you had bought it. Uh, now, now, this, uh, this was. I, I, can you tell me the name of the man? The name of the man was was nationally known. He was probably one of the few actually operating dictators in America. You know, we've had dictators in America. But they've been almost invariably local dictators. Now, I'm not talking about political bosses. Don't think of a political boss. not what we're talking about. I'm talking about a man who the entire society agrees is the leader. Nothing to do with this political boss, this guy up in Boston who got these votes and that. No, no. I'm talking about a genuine, absolute, true dictatorship. Now, right around the lake, and this was very common when I was a boy around uh, the Midwest, right around the lake, if, you would, if you'd leave Zion and drove maybe 40 miles down around the south shore of Lake Michigan and edge up through uh, the very edge of Michigan itself, right on the lake in a beautiful park was another famous, religious, uh, totally idealistic, completely Oz-like, they even had their own architecture. It was an incredible place, and they were famous for their baseball team, which they sent all over the country. Do you know anything about that outfit? Stand by, friends. Well, uh, now, I, uh, one of the big things in my, my uh, feckless youth uh, was to take a car and go up and, and visit the grounds of this strange, and it's still there, you know, this strange, peculiar, idealistic, uh, almost almost fairy tale-like community. Now, their architecture was, was wild to behold. They had built all these old... Their architecture was like a cross between uh, Victorian Rococo and uh, late Byzantine Baroque, with a great dash of uh, Graustarkian fairy tale. They had p towers with golden balls on the top with flags and pennants flying all over the place. Everything was painted red and green and yellow. And they had curly cues. It was, like, it was like the kind of place that if you were a little kid and you were sitting down and you were going to design fairyland, that's what you would design. Like little elves' houses. And, and uh, they had, yeah, little houses where elves and, and uh, where Hansel and Gretel live and all that sort of thing. And it was on, it was on a tract of ground. It was all green. And it had, it had trees all over. And there were thousands and thousands of men with giant beards walking around the place there. They all had these enormous beards. And it was based on some very fascinating concepts of uh, relationship between the sexes. Oh, wow, it was, a, it was an insane thing, a fascinating thing. And we used to go up there and drive around the grounds and uh, look at this place. They ran it as a kind of, uh, oh, uh, sort of an exhibit. You know, you could come up there and look at this thing. But they were there, you know, they were really living there. And they had little workplaces where they made little shoes and little places where they made souvenirs, you know. <laughs> and they would sit there in their utopia, surrounded by 
decadent, rotten, crummy, southern Indiana, southern Michigan, Chicago, all of that place around there. You know. and, and one of the famous stories is the time that an that a, uh, internationally uh, notorious gangster went up there on a Sunday just to visit it to make a contribution to Utopia. And he drove through wearing his big white hat and his black limousine with a bulletproof glass in the back. <laughs> and and uh, these, these things were all around out there. Now, this, this, uh, this idea has since grown into disfavor. Very few Americans now think in terms of packing up and cutting out. Uh, very, although, right now, you know that uh, in, the, in the hills of uh, California... In the Sierra Nevadas, for example, there are three or four groups of people. One of them is the most famous a couple of years ago. A group of uh, school teachers decided that they were going to have nothing to do with society. Uh, they were going to have nothing to do with society. They were mad at the atom bomb, everything else, and they were mad at the educational system, the whole, whole schlemo, you see. And they went off with a bunch of tents, about 65, 70 of them, are still living up there. And once in a while, one trickles back, you know, with a, with a black eye, uh, he's gotten into a big fight with somebody, but they're still out there, and they're still trying to make this utopia live and exist. Uh, of course, uh, there there are many things against it, namely people and themselves. But nevertheless, this is an attempt. Now, what most people do today, instead of the old 19th century concept, which was literally to physically get away, physically to split and establish a little town, they try to do it in their own house in their own self. And so they buy a book called The Seven Master Keys to Golden Inner Happiness. How to Become a Dynamic Utopia Within You. In short, men today are buying countless books that will make themselves into a little town called New Harmony. Themselves, you know. Old New Harmony Witherspoon has just come into the office, you know. Or uh, New Friendship Snodgrass is right now here and taking over. Uh, Zion Murphy has arrived, you see. <laughs> or uh, or uh, Communist Manifesto Glatz is on the scene. But nobody really wants to go and do it. A very few communists really want to go where communism is. They just don't think that. Uh, very few people who are hip on some kind of a wild religious concept want to really go and live in a religious community. Because of that one problem, they don't work. They just don't work, and everyone secretly knows it. So stay there, friends. Blow up that balloon, and by George, I think if you, I think a few uh, deep knee bends, a few uh, push-ups maybe, and some deep thoughts, by tomorrow morning at 8, you can be on your way. The Titanic Among Men. Launch.